Shared parenting does make it easy. I'm your host, Chris Batchelor, and this is the Parent Time Podcast. Parent Time Podcast is presented by National Parents Organization, a national nonprofit who is working hard to bring shared parenting nationwide. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Edward Cruck, who is the Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of British Columbia, who specialized in child and family policy. He's worked in both Canada and the United Kingdom and has practiced in the fields of welfare rights, child protection, social school work, hospital social work, and family services. He's currently teaching and practicing in the areas of family mediation and addiction. He's got a few books out, including his first book, Divorce and Disengagement, which was the first in-depth study of the experiences of divorced fathers and the phenomenon of father absence after divorce. He's also published two other books, Mediation and Conflict Resolution in Social Work and the Human Services and Divorced Fathers, Children's Needs and Paternal Responsibilities. He's published numerous peer-reviewed research articles in a range of social policy, social work, sociology, and other scholarly journals on the topics such as parental alienation, shared parenting, family law reform, family mediation, children in divorce, and women in addiction. With that, here's my interview with Dr. Edward Kruk. How are you doing today, Dr. Kruk? Oh, I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. And uh, so tell us a little bit about the research that you presented at the conference. Okay, well, uh, the conference theme centered around the topic of the intersection of shared parenting and family violence and um, looked at a range of issues uh, in regard to this very controversial uh, aspect of co-parenting. Uh, is there a place for co-parenting when uh, family violence has been or is an issue of concern? Uh, how do the two kind of relate to each other and intersect? Um, and also, I, I talked a bit about um, parental alienation as a form of family violence, uh, an unrecognized form of family violence. So uh, I'm also president of the International Council, or rather, uh, just as uh, just as of yesterday, former president of the International Council on Shared Parenting um, that uh, sponsored the conference. So, um, yeah, I think the conference was a bit of a uh, watershed in kind of understanding um, the issues related to uh, co-parenting in the context of family violence and uh, addressing some of the myths and misperceptions about it. Uh, we drew close to 1,100 participants from over 50 countries. So, uh, you, you know, that really signals that this is an important issue worldwide. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, in that research, uh, you know, oftentimes domestic violence is, uh, is not for shared parenting. Uh, and I think the, uh, the conference addressed that uh, in some significant ways. What are some uh, things that came out of the conference? Yeah. Well, um, I, I can talk a bit about, you know, addressing some of the myths and misperceptions in this area. First of all, uh, we, we ended the conference actually with a series of conclusions um, in regard to the present state of knowledge about family violence and shared parenting and also some recommendations for um, legal um, kind of determination of parenting after divorce, uh, best practices in the therapeutic realm and policy changes that need to be made. Uh, but our first recommendation um, posed, kind of focused on the question, 
that's a subject of a lot of debate these days. And that is, should the issue of domestic violence be seen as kind of a gender specific uh, issue and viewed as violence against women? Or, or is it more of a gender neutral um, conceptualization? Like, and maybe we should be talking rather than violence against women more generally as partner abuse. Um, so definitely when it comes to separation and divorce where uh, children are concerned and family violence is an issue of concern, we concluded that just this very narrow focus on fathers as perpetrators of abuse and mothers as exclusively victims of violence, really um, when you closely examine the research literature, it, it doesn't, um, it, really we, we should be looking at um, looking at this gender paradigm um, under with greater scrutiny it's kind of we found it wanting in several respects because um, several papers um, that were presented kind of pro provided very clear data that that um, about half of all domestic violence partner violence is reciprocal and, um, and that we've overlooked female to male violence. Um, and that's a concern for family violence researchers. But at the same time, mothers and children are uh, affected a little differently by family violence. Um, and there's no denying that violence against women um, is a serious issue, especially during parental separation and divorce. Um, and the impact of uh, violence is more pronounced for mothers um, because about two thirds of People who are uh, report being injured um, are women, um, and certainly during the coronavirus pandemic, lockdowns have left a lot of women trapped, feeling trapped and exposed to greater danger, um, and and all types of violence against women have intensified. So you can't kind of deny that um, that's that that uh, violence against women is an important issue and can't be overlooked, but. Equally important is uh, the issue of violence against men and, of course, violence against children. The issue of the effects of children witnessing spousal abuse is a really serious matter. Um, it's the most serious or rather most prevalent form of substantiated child abuse, witnessing the abuse of a parent. Um, and, uh, and it's one of the more serious forms of child abuse. Um, but one of the, we kind of led off the conference with uh, this um, statistic that fully 50% of first time violence occurs during uh, the divorce, separation and divorce period, where um, parents are disagreeing over the issue of custody uh, or parenting after separation. I don't like to use those kinds of outdated legal terms, but you know, they're, they're trying to negotiate uh, parenting arrangements and come to some kind of an impasse and then turn to the law for, um, to, to, you know, in an attempt to resolve the issue and dispute. And they find that the law actually exacerbates conflict. It pits parents against each other. It's a highly adversarial system that's based on each parent denigrating the other and proving that you're trying to prove that they're the, um, the better parent. And uh, during this time, the stakes are so high. It's, it, you know, each parent is fighting for a meaningful relationship with their children. And it's within that highly adversarial system 
that a lot of first time violence actually occurs when when people's relationship with their kids are, are being threatened. Um, so I think that's important to note that if a shared parenting legal presumption were in place, people wouldn't have to fight uh, over parenting arrangements. They'd know that they're equally valued and respected by the law and that their relationships with their children will both be protected. You could prevent uh, a lot of first-time violence um, through uh, kind of establishing a legal presumption of shared parenting responsibility. Uh, very few people realize that, yeah, fully 50% of first-time violence occurs within that adversarial uh, contest, that, that, that legal system that pits parents against each other. Uh, the, that shared parenting is really highly preventive of family violence. Um, so that, that was certainly one of the uh, the themes of the conference, uh, really affirming that shared parenting is not only a viable uh, arrangement, but really in the best interest of children and families um, because it serves as a bulwark against first-time family violence. So we support a rebuttable presumption of shared parenting when there is um, kind of a contest over uh, living arrangements shared parenting really needs to be the foundation of family law reform. But at the same time, we, we also um, had a consensus that although shared parenting is an optimal arrangement for the majority of children and families, including really high conflict families, it's really not uh, uh, appropriate, it's contraindicated in situations um, of substantiated domestic violence and child abuse. So at the same time, we're supporting a rebuttable presumption in favor of shared parenting, but rebuttable in cases of family violence, where it's been an issue of concern in the past and continues to be an issue of concern. But we also support a rebuttable legal presumption against shared parenting in family violence cases. And that's, you know, often you know, um, we see uh, particularly the legal system um, polarizing women and men, um, feminist groups and fathers groups, um, advocates for shared parenting and family violence researchers kind of dividing the two groups as being completely diametrically opposed from each other. That's actually not the case because this idea of uh, supporting a presumption against shared parenting in family violence cases, it's not incompatible with the idea of supporting a presumption of rebuttable presumption of shared parenting in all the other cases where, you know, the International Council on Shared Parenting is totally in accord with groups like the National Council of Juvenile, Juvenile and Family Court Judges in the U.S., the National Association of Women in the Law, um, we all these groups agree that in every proceeding where there's at issue a dispute as to the parenting of a child, uh, a determination by the court that family violence has occurred raises a rebuttable presumption that it's detrimental to the child, not in the best interest of the child, to be placed in a shared parenting arrangement, um, especially with a perpetrator of family violence. So, um, and, and we also concluded that family violence should be regarded as a criminal law matter, 
and uh, barriers to criminal prosecution of perpetrators of family violence um, should be removed and protection of victims of family violence and needs to be really emphasized, recognized, um, and, um, and, you know, recognizing that the criminal justice system does not protect victims of family violence as it should. It doesn't deal with the issue uh, very often. It's in the family court where allegations are made. There's no fact finding or real investigation of what's going on in regard to abuse allegations. But very often it's the family court that deals with the issue rather than the criminal court where it's, it should be addressed. Um, and finally, we, we kind of called upon child protection authorities uh, to recognize children witnessing the abuse of a parent as a serious child protection matter, a serious form of child abuse, um, which needs intervention to determine whether a child is in need of a protection from, from that parent uh, and immediate action to ensure children's safety and well-being. So, and we also included, of course, parental alienation as a common form of family violence in uh, contested um, adversarial uh, child custody proceedings. It's a serious form of child abuse, should be recognized as such by uh, mental health professionals, by policymakers, by legal practitioners, by courts. Um, and um, uh, one of our major conclusions was that, yeah, parental alienation is a particularly damaging form of both um, child abuse and parental alienation. So I want to go back a little bit and unpack because you, you gave, gave us a tremendous amount of information there. Um, I'd like to go back and, and you had stated that, uh, you know, in the case of where there's family violence, that, that you don't recommend shared parenting. Um, but then you also said that in, you know, 50% of cases, the, the, you know, domestic violence starts during the custody uh, proceedings. And so, um, you know, is there, I mean, it's not a black and white line. I don't think, I think there's some gray area there. Is there some guidance as far as, uh, you know, when you would and would not uh, recommend shared parenting? I mean, you know, obviously if the children have been witnessing, uh, that, that trauma, then that's probably not uh, a case where you'd have shared parenting, but what sort of guidance do you have on that? Yeah. Well, um, you're right. It, it isn't sort of a, there's a fine line, um, between you know really high conflict that escalates and actual family violence and 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 um, and there needs to be um, you know really thorough fact finding and investigation of any allegations of of abuse or uh, of, or, or of violence. Um, but the key here is this word rebuttable uh, in both cases. That well, first of all, with fifty percent of family violence occurring uh, after separation, during and after you know, uh, adversarial kind of proceedings, uh, that tells us that those cases, if shared parenting was ordered right away, uh, and if that was established as the foundation of family law, you would prevent violence in those cases. And, um, and neither children nor parents would be at risk. Um, and, and thus um, saying that shared parenting uh, legal presumption is a really good idea is is uh, kind of paramount. Um, but that's rebuttable in cases where family violence preceded the 
court proceedings. That is, that um, family violence was, a, was an issue of concern in the past. In those cases, there's a rebuttable presumption against uh, shared parenting. Um, however, I use the word rebuttable again here because it may be that there was an incident of violence in the past um, in which the perpetrator has taken responsibility, sought treatment and support. Um, the victim of violence um, has a support system in place uh, and the issue of violence has been addressed sufficiently so that shared parenting is um, a realistic and viable consideration. Um, so in those cases, with safety measures in place, specialized uh, interventions in place, um, like ongoing support um, to the family, um, therapeutic family mediation, uh, family coordination program, parent, parenting coordination programs, maybe parallel parenting where parents don't have to have any direct interaction with each other then you can establish safety in cases of historical family violence that enable shared parenting. Um, and the conference talked about um, just how important it is uh, to develop policies and guidelines regarding co-parenting uh, in the context of family violence. We talked about, first of all, the need for education and training of mental health and legal practitioners. Um, in um, regard to um, uh, abuse in intimate relationships and consequences for shared parenting, um, skills to screen for abuse and assess safety risks. Um, and uh, yeah, um, just what kind of interventions can enable shared parenting where violence has in the past been an issue of concern but is no longer but also um, the need for more discussion and policy and, and uh, development in the area of alternatives to shared parenting in cases of family violence. Because if you can um, completely exclude a parent from the life of a child um, without any uh, sort of measures in place, support uh, systems in place for both the perpetrator and the victim, then you may be further endangering the well-being of child and victimized parent if you don't have kind of um, those kinds of measures in place. So yeah, it's not a not always that clear cut, but you know, shared parenting is very instrumental as a uh, in in regard to preventing first-time uh, family violence, um, and also maybe a consideration where the violence issue has been addressed directly. The perpetrator has taken responsibility for his or her behavior. Uh, safety measures are firmly in place uh, and there's close monitoring of the family to enable shared parenting. It's not absolutely um, ruled out in all cases, but definitely you wanna take a cautious approach where family violence has been an issue of concern. And those cases would be excluded from an automatic kind of um, order of shared parenting um, to be in place. And we need to recognize parental alienation as a form of family violence, which it is. Yeah, I, I definitely want to address that. Um, but So I just want to make sure that I heard you right. You, you had stated that uh, if shared parenting was enacted in, in every state, that we would reduce 50% of domestic violence uh, that occurs during divorce. 
Yeah, um, I, I'd be a little bit cautious to kind of say, say it quite that strongly. Uh, just to clarify, I would say 50% of first time violence occurs during kind of this, uh, within the context of an adversarial fight over the parenting of children. Okay, so these are cases where there had been no family violence in the past, first time family violence, the great majority of those, definitely, if you had a shared parenting law in place, um, things would not escalate to the point of extremely high conflict leading to violence um, within that adversarial context. Uh, I'm not saying that 100% of those cases, um, but I, I'd say, you know, the great majority of those cases, definitely, you would be, um, it would be an effective uh, means of preventing first-time family violence because you're removing um, that threat of losing your children and and you're ensuring that each parent has an important role to play in their children's lives that they don't have to protect don't have to fight don't have to the conflict does not have to escalate yeah that, that's certainly uh reducing that conflict i think would be key in in a lot of cases um i want to unpack a little bit uh before we talk about parental alienation um let's talk a little bit about false allegations because that's uh, certainly something you know it's deemed the magic bullet that comes up in custody cases quite often and yeah. uh you know did the conference address address that issue and and what are your thoughts on uh, on false allegations and and what should courts do with people um, you know, I mean, obviously you have to take the allegation seriously, but when they're found false, then, you know, and, and is that also a form of abuse? Absolutely. Uh, both false allegations and false denials, they both occur, you know, I, and, and they're both serious problems. Uh, false allegations also because, yes, they're, they're um, um, you know, they're, they're uh, a way of removing a fit and loving parent from the life of a child. And so you're denying a child kind of a, a loving relationship. Uh, it also um, kind of trivializes the matter. If, there, if people are just freely um, alleging abuse in an effort to win their case in family court uh, without any consequences, um, that kind of diminishes or trivializes um, those situations where abuse is actually occurring. Um, courts become cynical. Well, yes, this is, you know, typical. So there, there could be situations where there's actual abuse. Um, and, and if there's this assumption, well, most of these cases are false allegations, then, then those actual cases are, are missed. The key, I think, is to regard allegations of abuse as a serious uh, criminal law matter um, where there needs to be um, really uh, in-depth fact-finding investigation. It should be treated very seriously. And in fact, if, if it's uh, absolutely apparent that a false allegation uh, has occurred, it's more likely to be detected within a criminal law setting First of all, if, if criminal law took it seriously, um, the the incidence of false allegations would diminish definitely because there would be, you know, recognition that this this is going to be investigated. You can't just make an allegation and have it being believed by a family court judge, which is what ha which which is what's taking place now. Um, 
but also that there would be consequences. Um, it's a form of mischief, really, because it has serious consequences to falsely allege. Um, but you also have the issue of false denials that I, th I think you, you can't uh, overlook, uh, where um, quite often people will allege abuse when they themselves are the perpetrators of violence uh, and, uh, and just outright deny. Um, it often becomes a case in family court, especially, of who mounts the stronger case in, the, in that adversarial proceeding, who has the more kind of convincing lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and has the financial resources to uh, to to make that case. Uh, there's a lot of false allegation going on, but also a lot of false denials, false denials. Um, and um, family law, family the family law system, family court is not the venue to determine whether or not abuse and family violence has occurred. It's a criminal matter and should be treated as as such. Yeah, certainly. I think if the courts uh, treated, you know, false allegations and perjury as a criminal matter, then, uh, you know, people in court will be a lot more cautious about throwing out those allegations, uh, you know, just to win their case, because uh, there, there would definitely be uh, some consequences, uh, you know, for doing that. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's, I kind of, look at it, uh, you know, we need sort of a four tier system, uh, legal presumption of of uh, shared parenting, rebuttable in cases of violence. Secondly, kind of a network of, uh, I'd say, therapeutic programs that are meant to support people who are in the transition from being, you know, a two-parent family to co-parenting in two different households. Thirdly, kind of prevention programs where people are oriented to the um, needs of children and families and different co-parenting arrangements and possibilities. And fourthly, is that enforcement pillar um, where, um, yeah, legal consequences for these types of things like false allegations and false denials are firmly in place. Well, I think that's a good segue to, to talk about parental alienation because that's another topic which, uh, you know, I believe uh, would would benefit from some criminal aspect to it because I think a lot of people um, abuse uh, the system and the system lets them get away. But um, so talk to us a little bit about parental alienation, what's your thoughts on it and, and how should it be handled, um, you know, between the parties and, and by the courts? Yeah, well, um, there's a lot of controversy about this, uh, the whole concept of parental alienation, but it's largely driven by what I would call the divorce industry that has a stake in, uh, in kind of maintaining the st status quo, the legal status quo above everything else, because there are well over uh, 1,200 um, uh, research projects that have been published um, in peer-reviewed journals and books. Uh, on the topic of parental alienation, we know a great deal about parental alienation in regard to um, the incidence being way higher than we uh, imagined it to be. Um, the consequences being so devastating, not only for the targeted parent of the alienation, but the child who comes eventually to hate him or herself. Um, and uh, and um, and really feels, you know, like they've betrayed a parent, even though they're kind of brainwashed into hating a parent. Um, and um, yeah, all kinds of myths, myths and misperceptions, again, surrounding parental alienation um, as, you know, really 
being a matter of you know children having valid reasons for hating a parent. Uh, you don't see children who are actually abused uh, behaving the way that alienated children do. They, they're they're very um, very determined to um, cut off their uh, relationship with the targeted parent. They're very much parroting the uh, viewpoints of the alienating parent. Um, we know a lot about the behaviors and tactics of alienating parent, which is those tactic, tactics are, are very similar to those of uh, parents who demonstrate other forms of family violence. Um, but yeah, it's a situation, it's a, you know, first and foremost, I think a situation of um, emotional child abuse that often is linked with other forms of child abuse. Um, these parents have um, a total disregard for the needs and well-being of their children. They're more interested in um, hurting, finding ways of hurting the other parent, using the children to hurt the other parent uh, than they are uh, focused on children's well-being and children's needs. Um, I think of one thing that we don't often recognize is that, um, you know, we tend to blame parents and I think parents do, you know, should be um, held ac accountable for these alienating behaviors. Uh, but at the same time, uh, their behaviors are often rewarded within an adversarial legal context, which, which pits parents against each other and, um, and almost rewards them for being um, aggressive and adversarial and mounting the stronger case in a custody proceeding. Uh, it sets them up for alienation and rewards that behavior. So, you know, we've got a system of collective child abuse almost uh, happening in that regard. Um, and, and just, um, yeah, uh, again, I think we need, um, we need a law reform in this area, recognition of parental alienation as a form of violence and abuse, um, child protection authorities becoming involved and in recognizing this as a form of uh, child abuse. We're kind of at a point today uh, where we were 100 years ago with respect to physical and sexual abuse of children. There was widespread denial. It's occurring now with parental alienation and emotional child abuse in general. There's a lot of um, a kind of uh, underreporting of that. We don't take that as seriously as other forms of abuse, and yet it has kind of devastating outcomes. We, we need more emphasis on treatment programs, reunification programs uh, for parents who've been, and children who have been separated from each other. And of course, we need uh, you know, legal enforcement of uh, co-parenting and shared parenting orders where parents don't abide by that and are, are still trying to alienate their children. But you know, I, I, again, I think there's a, a case to be made for shared parenting in family law here because um, a shared parenting law we've seen in those jurisdictions where shared parenting is the law, is the foundation of family law and the, the default position um, that rates of parental alienation are much, much less. Um, yeah, people are not set up to kind of de uh, denigrate each other. Parents won't denigrate each other when they know that the outcome is going to be shared parenting. There's no need to, to, to attempt uh, alienation strategies in a, in a way to kind of win your case in court. And, uh, you know, I know there's, you know, this stuff all, you know, exists on a spectrum. And 
Um, I, I think what I've seen, you know, reported in the past is you sort of have these parents that are uh, unknowingly alienating their children um, through, you know, sort of bad behavior uh, because they're very emotional about the divorce and things like that. Um, and then you have those those parents that are intentionally alienating their children. They're going way out of their way to, you know, to make, uh, you know, make the children hate the other parent. Um, and is that something that's, you know, sort of, uh, distinguishable and, a you know, easily distinguishable in a court case, or are there some measures for those sorts of things? I think it, it is, um, more distinguishable than we may, uh, recognize. And, and I've always said, you know, by look at people's actual behaviors, um, in, in these cases where, uh, People's intention and action, you know, parents' intentions and actions clearly are meant to completely eradicate the child's relationship with the other parent, where in fact there's total denial of con of any kind of contact. Uh, clearly, that's the, a very severe form of parental alienation. Um, there hasn't been enough research on those severe cases. Um, but when outright contact refusal is is the tactic, um, then you've got you know a very very serious form of alienation. Uh, you know when that occurs in the absence of any kind of um, evidence of um, the target parents you know um, uh, mistreatment of the child or any valid reason for the child uh, rejecting that parent. So we're kind of uh, running towards the end of our time here. Is there anything else uh, that you wanted to talk about? Well, no, other than, you know, I really admire and support the work of the National Parents Association, there, uh, which is a partner um, and very uh, involved in the um, kind of international shared parenting movement uh, with the International Council on Shared Parenting. Um, I would um, really encourage your listeners to kind of uh, uh, keep an ear out for um, our future conferences. The, the one in Vancouver, um, I thought was our su most successful by far. Um, this is an international uh, kind of social movement um, and um, that has made some really uh, strong gains. In Europe, for example, the Council of Europe voted you know almost unanimously to establish shared parenting as the foundation of family law some years ago and that's largely due to the efforts of uh, shared parenting scholars and advocates so um yeah so so there's definitely a paradigm shift going on um and we see that in the states uh especially with you know more progressive legislators uh and legislatures um uh, establishing shared parenting as the foundation of family law. Well, fantastic. And uh, Dr. Crack, I want to thank you for joining us today. And uh, you write a column for psychology today, right? Yes, co-parenting after divorce. So okay. I kind of address this full range of issues. Um, particularly, it's uh, directed not only at professionals, but parents themselves. So have a have a look at that. And, uh, and, let's see. and how often do those articles come out? Well, usually about once a month. Um, yeah, it depends. Once every month or two that I uh, kind of have a column. Most recently, the column, my columns have focused on this issue of the intersection of shared parenting and family violence. Fantastic. And uh, if people need to get a hold of you, uh, where can they do that at? 
Okay, well, I can be reached um, by email, uh, edward.kruk at ubc.ca. I'm uh, on faculty at the University of British Columbia, so uh, I can be contacted that way. Well, fantastic. I certainly want to uh, thank you for joining us today and uh, a lot of really great information. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that we could dig into and, and unpack uh, in, you know, in future uh, episodes if you'd like to. Okay, well, thank you, Chris, for the opportunity. It's great. Now, that was recorded on video, so if you want to go ahead and watch the video, you can find the link in the show notes. It's on YouTube. And if you have any questions, you can contact National Parents Organization at sharedparenting.org. Don't forget to like National Parents Organization on social media. Just go ahead and do a Facebook search for National Parents Organization and smash the like button. You're also going to find several Facebook pages for different state chapters, so go ahead and like those pages as well. And don't forget, you can also follow National Parents Organization on Twitter or LinkedIn. The links to those social media sites are on the sharedparenting.org website. If you're passionate about shared parenting, the best thing you can do is get involved. And the best way to do that is by contacting your state chapter. If you head over to the sharedparenting.org website, you can find the links to your state chapter and then contact them directly to take action and volunteer. We could also use your help with donations. National Parents Organization is a nationally recognized nonprofit registered in Massachusetts. To donate, visit sharedparenting.org and click the Take Action and then Donate. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Tell us what you think on social media or by going to the sharedparenting.org website and sending us a message. Fill out that contact form and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear about what you think about the show or what you want to hear on the show, those sorts of things. So go ahead and, and send us a message. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Chris Batchelor. Thanks for listening, and together we can help bring shared parenting nationwide. Love.